Hello and welcome to another episode of A Woman's Place. You're joining us on the third recording of this episode. We've had some major technical difficulties, hard and software. So we're well versed in this <laughs> this podcast at this stage. We are well rehearsed, we're fine tuned and I hope we get this. This will be the best one yet, won't it, Sarka? Of course. Here's hoping. Uh, we've come to today to talk to you about something that is very relevant and extremely uh, frustrating for a lot of us. Uh, and that is the current disaster that is facing this country. And we kind of want to get into um, what creates disaster, what is actually disaster, because what we conceptualize as disaster and what disaster actually is are two very different things. And, um, you know, if you've been paying attention to the news, you'll see that Michal Martin uh, had a, what's we call it, did an exclusive interview with the Mirror um, last night, 10 p.m. And that's how we found out that we're going to have another, what, nine weeks of um, restrictions. And it's really... It's really in an in an effort to to kind of uh, bring down the numbers, but we, as we'll learn, uh, it is also it's a it's a bandage for a situation that they're not managing properly. Um, I also read I think that the schools are not going back until Easter. So they even after Easter. One of the ministers, I can't remember, might have even been Michal Martin himself, came out and said that schools are going to go back on a phased basis from the 1st of March. And that's not workable at the moment with the case numbers the way they are, because back in like mm-hmm. October, we had the same amount of cases, but we didn't have very much of the new variant from the UK, which is 90% more transmissible. Yeah. Um, so it, like Neffet are basically saying if we go back at 600 cases a day, with this new UK variant, we're talking, you know, 6,000 cases a day a couple of weeks later because it is just so mm-hmm. transmissible. Um, and I think we all know that uh, teenagers and young children, they don't social distance very well. It's it's something that I find very, very difficult. So saying yeah, the schools and they've... are going back is really just a, a kind of a foolish thing to do, if I'm honest. Yeah, and they also um, were skewing the data. They were saying that there was no, um, there was no outbreaks in the school, but of course the outbreaks in the homes are were huge. Which is, uh, and we're seeing the effects of long COVID. They're calling it now, and the and the effects on children that um, it might look different. Um, it might not be as fatal, but it's certainly still dangerous for children. Yeah, and all so of this could have been ramifications of this. All of this could have been avoided, and that's kind of really what we're here to talk about today: is that the mm-hmm. disaster and management of disaster. So, Christina, that's your kind of mm-hmm. area. Yeah. So, I just wanted to prefix this preface, preface, um, it by saying, like, what we're witnessing from the government is uh, a legacy of ineptitude that historically and continuously has failed to govern, manage and respond to crises. Um, As I've mentioned now for the third time, 
as Holly Kern went on the TV and said, we need a response. I think she was talking about the mother and baby homes. We need a response that is proportionate to the damage that has been done. And that is not what we're getting. Um, I want to make it abundantly clear that uh, to people that uh, the refusal um, to respond re uh, reactively and proactively proactively to the crisis is is the disaster. So I wanted to talk about just define disaster first. So this 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 um this podcast is going to be like what the coronavirus ha and the famine have in common. So what is disaster? Um, disaster is an event concentrated in time and space in which a society or one of its subdivisions undergoes physical harm and social disruption, disruption, such that all or some of the essential functions of a society or subdivision are impaired. Events that are concentrated in time and, and space distinguish it from something that distinguish it by being something that causes like 50, 50 deaths in a few minutes from automobile accidents that cause approximately 35,000 deaths per year. So that's what a kind of uh, frames a disaster is that it's concentrated in time and space rather than like, you know, we see that all the time on, on Facebook and stuff. They're, they're like, well, we don't we don't declare cancer a disaster. We don't declare that a national emergency and like thousand people's people die a year. And that's because of other factors. You know, it's not by this definition of disaster, it's not concentrated in time and space. So what, uh, what is, what are the things that create, create disaster? So there is the pre impact conditions. That is the hazard exposure, physical vulnerability, social vulnerability, and then there's everything else else around it that it, it that those things, um, which we'll get into in a second kind of, uh, clash, clash with or not clash but merge with what we kind of conceptualize as disaster is what in disaster studies they refer to as a hazard event so you might say oh god that earthquake killed a thousand people um but for instance a the earthquake in that hit uh japan i think it was 2000 and early 2000s um kills very few people and it was a Richter scale. It was a Richter scale uh, uh, at seven, I think it was. And then this, uh, uh, no, it was a Richter scale nine. And then another earthquake hit Port-au-Prince in Haiti with Richter scale seven. And that had thousands and thousands and thousands more. And that's because of the the vulnerabilities and the things around it. Um, so just to give you like an overview, the... Uh, in disaster, uh, a man a ma emergency management interventions include hazard mit mitigation, emergency preparedness, uh, recovery recovery preparedness. These are all the things that are meant to happen before a uh, disaster strikes, before a hazard event stri strikes. Because you know you can't be trying to build the road whilst you are simultaneously trying to drive to the other end of the country. It has to be there the groundwork has to be laid out before you, before you're able to 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 use it or not use it but when you when you need to use it, it needs to be there rather than trying to build it after the fact yeah then so there are i know that in japan they have very high building specs because of the amount of mm -hmm. earthquakes that they suffer 
And I know that about five years ago, there was a contractor, a building contractor, and he was sent to prison because he lied about the specs of the apartments he was building mm. and they collapsed in an earthquake and killed not not very many, but, you know, yeah. anyone dying is terrible. So they killed a few people and they put him in prison for manslaughter. Right. And like that's a perfect, um, a perfect comparison to Port-au-Prince, what happened in Haiti. Um there was no building regulations and the, and people had been warning about this for for years and years so like there were several circumstances that compounded to create the disaster but one of them was that you had a concentrated population in um really uh, poor housing so there was a highly dense housing that was had no uh you know they weren't built properly they didn't have any um prepared you know they didn't have any like like Japan, um, they couldn't withstand a, a hazard event like an earthquake like that. So that decision at governmental levels not to have um, proper regulations and to enforce them led to the deaths of thousands of people. So um, just on the event, uh, on the other, so this is all the things that make up you know, response and disasters is um, event specific conditions, which is the hazard event. So what type of event, what scale it is, where it occurs, um, improvised disaster response and improvised disaster recovery. And, uh, you know, we're going to get into this now, but I think we can all agree that in Ireland we're all doing improvised disaster response and um, with little to no emergency preparedness or um so yeah that's you know it's all very patchwork so what um i want to discuss now is the what so the 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 pre-impact conditions because these are really important so pre-impact conditions are made up of vulnerabilities so they can be structural physical social Physical is like human and agricultural. Agriculture is more important when we're talking about the famine. Um, physical uh, vulnerabilities are are relevant here when we're talking about human beings because the coronavirus affects human beings. So um, if you have a vulnerability such as a human being, then uh, you need to have systems that deal with that. So uh that that rely that comes into the structural so structure structurally we should have had a it would be um at the healthcare system um also human vulnerabilities would be to the extent that you're you're like uh, one human is more vulnerable than, than the other um because of their exposure but also because of their lifestyle so um or lifestyle or health or health um health condition so that is one of the reasons why the uh while the why while the deaths were so high in america because obesity is a is a um a human vulnerability there is a is a is a uh what's the word it's um it's one of the it's it, it affects people worse how what's that word what am i trying to say it is i'm not too sure it's a a human frailty no no it's um obesity is a risk factor obesity is a risk factor for for the for 
coronavirus and also such things as cancer and um you know uh any you know autoimmune disease all those things are are risk factors so when we're talking about our structural vulnerability that we have here if your you know the virus um affects human beings what are the structures that you have to have in place and one of the things you have to have in place is ICU uh, bed capacity and a, a, a properly funded healthcare system, which we do not have. <laughs> so we have a stretched uh, healthcare system and we have the lowest ICU bed capacity in Europe. So when the coronavirus hit uh, very quickly, our ICU beds filled up and therefore it didn't get, there wasn't enough, there wasn't enough elasticity and flexibility in the system in order to allow for um, uh, a disaster like that occurring. So, um, yeah, like um, I have here as other uh, structural vulnerabilities, you know, a lack of official department that deals with viruses. So Tony Hulahan is not a virologist or an epidemiologist. So not having that expertise in place to have a kind of like you know, a warning system, you have a war, you know, places, places have warning systems for all different types of, of, of events. Um, we also, I, I believe a pre-impact condition that was a vulnerability was our political, um, makeup. So our political body un was unprepared to react effectively to, in a timely manner. Um, and so political incompetence really became a huge vulnerability. Um, an economic system that prioritizes profit over people, and um, however, Ireland is a collectivist society, therefore solidarity was high and Mehal is part of our culture. So, you know, we are able to behave in 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 a, a huge group, um, which it can uh, which can help each other, which is really positive. But there is limits to that. And just um, before we get on to the pre impact conditions, I just want to point out like what is happening in Texas is the perfect example of this. I don't know if you've been um, uh, keeping abreast of that, Sarika, have you? Yeah, yeah. I've seen some of the like really shocking images of people trying to stay warm yeah. when all the pipes in their house have burst and they're running out of power, having rolling blackouts. Right. Yeah. So like the, the Texas had decided it was trying to like basically like break off from the union. It's not part of the, the, the electrical grid of for the rest of the United States um, and it has an incompetent leadership. So much so that Tim Boyd, the um, the mayor of Colorado in Texas, went online on Facebook and told people like, you're on your own. If you don't have heat, find a way to make your heat. If you don't have, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sick of people asking for a handout, like literally the leader of the city telling people like, it's just complete and utter incompetence. And it's a, a prioritization of profit over people that had siphoned off all of the, um, the, the, the state's utilities to profit, like co to companies for profit. So they were able to skip corners. They were able to, you know, hike up prices. They hiked up prices during when the freeze hit, etc. So like for, uh, for electricity. So it's just all in all, like just a massive, 
mass it has created far more of a disaster because the response is so poor. So, um, saying all that, Sirka, can you introduce what the pre-impact conditions and vulnerabilities were for the um, people during the period of famine? Okay, so um, little history lesson. Um, we were we were made British subjects in eighteen o one through the Act of Union. So no longer were we a, a, a colony, shall we say. We were an actual part of the UK, the same as um, Scotland and Wales. So that's that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that even though we were a colony, we had a lot of anti-Catholic laws in place, one of which um, directly impacts on the severity of the famine in Ireland. So the Popery Act 1703 forced the Gavelkind inheritance law mm-hmm. on Irish Catholics, meaning their law had to be equally subdivided among their sons instead of the law of primogeniture, which was in use by Protestants in Ireland and um, all of the island of Great Britain used the law of primogeniture, which means your eldest son gets uh, the inheritance. So because of the Gavelkind inheritance, it meant that every generation farms got smaller and smaller um, because the land had to be parceled out. If you had seven sons, you had to give them seven equal parcels of land. So what what that led to was a massive over-reliance on the potato crop because you can grow such a large crop of potatoes in such a small area of land. Um, a lot of Ireland also, especially in the West, is quite poor. The land itself, it's very rocky. And so um, people used to dig what they called, what, what the English deemed um, lazy beds, which is where you just get turf and you put a seed potato in between two pieces of turf and it will grow a crop of potatoes for you. So the average Irish person at this time at 2.8 kilograms of potatoes every day, which is a huge over-reliance on a singular crop. So that's one of the pre-impact conditions is the massive over-reliance, which was actually noted in the 1810s by a survey sent to Ireland. They actually reported back to the mm-hmm. British government that it was a disaster waiting to happen when you had um, 4 million people also dependent. Our population was 8 million, but we can kind of guess that about 4 million people were, were heavily, heavily, heavily reliant, as opposed to maybe the other 4 million who had things like, you know, maybe a bit of wheat, maybe a bit of cheese, etc., maybe some animals. So um, the other pre-impact condition, a bit like now, was the lack of proper housing. So because some of the cottiers, the Irish peasants, were so poor, they couldn't afford to have a proper house. So they built their house out of natural materials. They're, they're known as behans in Irish, which means just like a really poor house. And essentially, it would be maybe six foot by 10 foot. And there would be at least six people living in a house like that. Sometimes there'd be two or three generations living in a house like that. So they were all hugely cramped um, together. And essentially, um, the entire economy was kind of built on potatoes. So you ate your potatoes from the ground to feed yourself, but you also sold any excess potatoes you might have in order to pay your rent or you paid your rent with potatoes. So the collapse of the potato leads to a complete breakdown in the economic viability of everybody and a complete breakdown in the kind of social, um, I think that's... the kind of social, like things that were socially acceptable, if you know what I mean. Um, so I would say that mm-hmm. the lack of proper housing, the over-reliance on the potato crop and a huge culture 
um, of indifference towards the Irish by the British. So um, they just they just didn't care um, about the Irish at all, even though we made up one third of their population of the population of the United Kingdom. Um, they, they just didn't care about us. You know, um, we were British citizens who were left to shrivel and die not 400 miles from London. Parts of Ireland are closer to England than parts of Scotland. Um, like the famine was a moral defeat for the British authorities because it just showed their huge indifference towards us. So those are the pre-impact conditions for the famine. Um, how much it affects people as well, I just want to briefly touch on is, you know, when we talk about hazard expo- exposure, hazard exposure is the is the to the to the extent that you are vulnerable to um to to the event so for instance obviously people in hospitals are more exposed to the virus because they're treating them uh people in healthcare settings are more exposed to the virus because they have to um because they, you know, in, in caring settings, because they have to be up physically with people. So anyone who is dealing with people, essentially, um, in a maybe cramped or closed environment, is more vulnerable. So people in offices who can work from home, yes, they might be more vulnerable in the beginning, but at the end of the day, they can go home because their job isn't you know stuck in that space whereas like a teacher for instance like they can't I mean they can but it's not um ideal um and teachers would be theoretically and now we haven't seen the data but I would say that um we'll see um maybe in the coming months or years and um uh, a huge part a huge part of our problem as well and this comes to like disaster preparedness is um like even if they didn't know that that a big like pandemic was going to hit we've been dealing with the flu for a really long time oh we've been uh so year yearly there is a disaster with the flu and people die of the flu every year because um they are out on trolleys in the middle of uh uh corridors in in um in our hospitals and i think people don't understand that our or I certainly didn't anyway, didn't understand, you know, like, it's not just the flu, <laughs> you know, it's actually deadly. And if you don't have the attention of of a few nurses, you know, if your nurse is overworked, if your nurse is tired, if your doctor is, um, is the same, then you're not going to receive the level of care that you need. And if you're on a trolley instead of inside in a room, you're also exposed to more disease that's passing, etc, etc. So even if they never knew a pandemic was coming, the fact that we have an epidemic every year, which is, uh, and they allow that to happen year in and year out, is, um, you know, that should have been enough to get them to prepare, but they didn't. And, um, also, a huge thing is, um, I was reading this thing on Twitter, you know, our hospitals don't have enough um, isolation capacity. They don't have enough private beds. So when you bring someone in, so you test them, you're like, okay, I'm going to test you to make sure you don't have COVID. They test negative, but then they develop, co- you know, they de- develop symptoms or it's incubating in their bodies and um, they test positive later, but then they're after spreading it to the 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 thing that's the biggest thing though the the spreader is they've been put in a ward with six seven eight nine fifteen people so they've spread it to the entire ward so it's that cutting of corners and making 
rooms open plan that have led to more of the spread in hospitals. Um, so yeah, I just thought that was an important point to make about because a lot of this disease is coming from, you know, a lot of the spread is coming from inside the hospitals. Um, a lot of the cases. Anywhere that's, anywhere that's crowded with poor ventilation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ireland itself, unfortunately, like Northern Europe in general, is a cold, damp um, place in the winter and you stay inside and you close your windows, you know, and that just helps the virus to spread so much more as well. Like if there's one thing that we know is that they kind of emphasized the wrong thing at the start, like our government, like they really overemphasized the hand washing and didn't emphasize the importance of social distancing and and um, ventilation enough. Even at the start, you know, when they were saying like respect social distancing, like that's quite difficult language for somebody to understand when it's a phrase you've never heard mm-hmm. before. You know, why couldn't they make the messaging simpler and just say, like, please stay at home, go out once a week, do not go within two meters of another person, wear a mask mm-hmm. instead of the kind of social distancing, like, yeah, I know we know what it means now, but I, I bet you there was a lot of people who didn't know what it meant at well, the beginning. Well, they were also downplaying the use of masks, which I understand because um, so did the CDC because there was a shortage and they were afraid that people would, you know, um, would uh, rush and buy them or whatever, you know, the... Pre- yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like they weren't basing it on anything except copycatting from what I can see. But as you hit on this, the the um, the uh, proper conditions. So, yeah, our another um, vulnerability and other risk factor is our poorly ventilated housing and workplaces and schools. You know, I read the other day that carbon um, build up in schools is really really bad in this country and uh, it's the thing that causes you to fall asleep when you're in school so if you have a really badly ventilated classroom in a normal time you're gonna you know if you, and your kids are falling asleep in their classroom probably because they have too much carbon in the air um but um because then we are a, a colder country as you said that you know the virus can circulate uh and um spread quicker because we don't live outside as much as people in South America or Africa or Southeast Asia or Asia. Uh, We are very much inside. Um, And I just want you to speak about how, because it's not something I knew before researching this podcast, but how exactly the potato blight came to, um, came to um, Ireland. And then we're going to speak about the um, reaction of the 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 two governments at the time now and back then to the the unfolding disaster so the potato blight its proper name is phytothor infestansis and it's a mold a spore um, that takes over um things like potatoes and tomatoes um both of which come from south america so the potato blight started in um in South America, probably near enough to Caracas, and it spread on um, on the wind and in the holds of ships to America. And we know that the blight itself crossed the, the Atlantic on a ship um, full of seed potatoes that was bound for Belgium. So the, the blight landed in Antwerp in 1845, um, just as the potato crop was ripening. And as those seed potatoes were taken off the ship and and moved around the harbour, the spores began spreading. And 
it soon um, went from Belgium to into like Denmark, Prussia, Northern France, and then into Ireland. And the what the potato um, blight does is it rots the potato in the ground. So when you look at an early onset stage of blight, the top of the plant looks very healthy. And then when you pull it out, the potato itself is rotten. Late onset blight actually turns the leaves black. So by the time that, uh, say, you get to the end of your field, the, the, the leaves there would very likely be black as well. And that was a very common sight in Europe in, in 1845 for that to happen. So it it's came to Ireland and um, Ireland has the perfect climate for the blight. Um, it loves damp, moist, windy um, places. So when it arrived, people actually said that you could um, smell the rot in the air, that like people woke up and went outside, you know, their potato crop was perfect the night before and overnight, literally they went out and there was this smell of rotten food and it was their potatoes rotting in the ground. Now. The um, the same thing happened in um, in as I said Belgium and northern France and Denmark, but the way that it was dealt with was very very different. And I think that this is very similar to the coronavirus because um, now while obviously um, at the time the government wouldn't have been getting reports that quickly from northern France or or um, or Belgium saying that this was happening, not as quickly as say current governments would have seen the situation in Italy or Iran, it would have been it would have been a very um, speedy message through Europe. You know, I can't imagine it would have taken more than two weeks for the news that the blight was in Antwerp to hit London. If you know what I mean, I don't I don't think two I think two weeks is, mm-hmm. is a, um, a reasonable time frame for something like that to happen. So I think what one of the things that it, the coronavirus and the famine really have in common is the kind of um, ineptitude and kind of paltry meager steps that governments took when they could see what was coming down the line and they knew that their paltry meager steps were not going to be enough so the i just want to get into now the reaction of our government so in the first wave we pre the first wave before the first wave actually hit you know we knew it was coming it was like two three months in the news um, the first case wasn't detected here until like late February, March, and um, we could see what was going on in uh, Iran, China, and of course, Italy. So Italy was seeing deaths of like 600, 1,000 a day, and it was just horror stories about people having to choose between their patients, um, who's going to live and die, etc., etc., and they basically send a warning to the rest of us being like lads you know like seriously prepare um but our like nefit here and um don't even know if it was nefit but certainly the government well there's no there's no uh there it hasn't hit here yet so we don't have we we don't have to take the necessary precautions because there's no proof. Like I remember watching Tony Hewlin talk about there's, there's, there, we don't have sufficient data. It's like, you don't need to have it now because you can see it happening in real time. Like you're waiting for a report to come back about a disaster that is currently happening. But so, um, the thing, the big things that happened that was, uh, in the first wave were the government and an effort to not respond to the virus before it came, became a problem. 
Um, they had some time to set up mitigation systems like t uh, track and trace, but didn't. They uh, and only recently I realized that they weren't doing a retrospective um, tracing, which is tracing it all back to to one event. They're um, they're only they're only being like, oh, who are your close contacts? And then not linking it all up. I think they linked up a few to like prove that restaurants and stuff were, were bad. But um, yeah, anyway, they downplayed the wearing of masks. But most egregiously, they kept the borders open. Cheltenham was a huge one and Italy fans were allowed to come to Ireland for the rugby, um, despite the rugby being cancelled. Um, so they prepared to, f they failed to prepare um, then after for another wave and left the door open for a second. And, you know, like the the population, the Irish population were in front of the government on every step. Like they were like, stop people coming home from Tottenham. Hey, don't let these rugby fans come. And then they were, they would have stayed open for St. Patrick's Day had there not been um that outrage over Temple Bar the week before. And then the government had to react because... Irish people were up in arms about like they're not going to like people are not going to obey social distancing on St. Patrick's Day like you need to close so that's 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 what happened there so can you tell us a little bit about um what happened on the first wave for the famine so um I'm going to talk about the British reaction first and then I'm going to talk about the reaction of the other countries um so um the Prime Minister at the time was a guy called Robert Peel, who actually knew Ireland quite well. He was Chief Secretary of Ireland in the 1810s, and he he actually was very, very aware of the heavy over-reliance on the potato um, as he had travelled around Ireland. And he kind of made it clear to his government that unless something was done, um, they would see huge deaths from starvation, and that was not going to be a good look, you know? So what he does is he sets up um, a relief commission, which in turn sets up hundreds of small committees around Ireland to distribute uh, relief, such as public works. However, um, conditions are very harsh intentionally and pay is very low because they don't really want um, people signing up. They want like only the most desperate people to sign up so they don't have to pay people to do kind of pointless work. And it was it was very, very pointless. You know, we have um, any of our Irish listeners will know we have so many like roads to nowhere, like roads up through like the Connemara where there they lead to nothing there's no villages or you know anything there it was just it was just done to um make the government feel better about handing out charity like the government in England followed mm. a lazy fair attitude which um as any francophiles among us will know it just means like let it alone like let it be and that was their economic policy was that the economic machine will fix itself just one point, like their original strategy in, for the coronavirus was herd immunity, which is the def, you know, which is laissez-faire, you know, like let it just run through the population and we don't have to do anything. This is our strategy. Like, yeah. Uh, and anyway, it was, it was, um, it could have like, it could have been like the laissez-faire attitude that they had at the time. It didn't just apply to um to irish people like you know this is kind of dickensian london that we're talking about where like you have real street children running around barefoot who are starving and nobody cares because they really really didn't mm -hmm. they saw anybody who was unemployed or homeless as a, it was a result of their own fecklessness you know um and you should have no pity mm -hmm. for them because they did this to themselves so that was their attitude mm -hmm. to the, towards their own citizens but in particular 
um, they really had a, a, a complete misunderstanding and a kind of fierce, um, how would I say, like looking down upon the Irish, you know, they, they saw they, they saw us as feckless and lazy. And now they see us as even more feckless and lazy because the one fecking crop that we rely on won't grow, you know, so that's our own fault is how they saw it. However, Peel did, um, he did attempt to bring in food relief. So he got, um, he got his a banker called Sir Thomas Barring to buy, secretly buy £100,000 of American maize for shipment to Ireland. But before any official relief programme could proceed, there was a political obstacle for him to overcome. So Britain had this thing called a Corn Law, which imposed, which imposes exorbitant duties on imported grain to ensure that it could never be cheaper than homegrown produce. And Peel knew that to do it anyway was to kind of sign his political death warrant. So he didn't care. He did it anyway. Um, and he made this speech in the House of Lords where he said, are you are you so hesitant in averting famine, which may come because it possibly may not come? Are you to look and depend upon chance and such an extremity? Are you to sit in a cabinet and consider and calculate how much diarrhea and bloody flux and dysentery a people can bear before it becomes necessary for you to provide them with food? So that was his attitude was that how can you sit there and watch these people die? Um, because that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So what he did was he brought in corn and it was a success. Nobody died of starvation in Ireland in 1845. Now, part of it was due to his food relief, but part of it was also due to the fact that people had things to pawn. You know, they could pawn their extra winter coat or if they had one, they could pawn their furniture, their fishing rods, etc. So between the combination of both of those two things, the winter of 1845 was okay people were okay. They weren't in a good place, but they were okay. So that was kind of the first wave of the famine in Ireland. Yes. Like, yeah, people can get through harsh conditions for X amount of time. Exactly. You know, and after that, it's like, you know, there's only, there's only so much you can do, especially when it's left to personal responsibility. Um, yeah, they love that, don't they? So the second wave then, um, which... Love that. I saw another guy today on Twitter being like, um, oh, well, you shouldn't because some guy was saying, oh, blah, blah, blah. The 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 um, the government are to blame for for this response. And then a guy was like, actually, you should blame all the people who um, didn't do what they were told um, and uh, mingled with people. And I didn't get into an argument because, like, what's the point? But um you know, there was 54,000 people came home at Christmas time. Oh, yeah. From all over the world. 100%. During the, during the pandemic. Loads of They people. were allowed in the country. They were encouraged. Like, it so, was kind like, of this idea of, like, we'd have one last hurrah. We all knew we were going back into lockdown in January anyway. And I think that added to people's yeah. kind of, kind of, um, you know, like, that they didn't, they just didn't really see it as a problem. They were like, oh, sure, fuck it. In for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah. And if there was only 5% of people who were positive with COVID and a lot of them came back from the UK, um, which was the variant, which is how the seed, the, the seeding of that variant happened was Christmas time. Then what's that like? 5% is 5% of our population. What's 1% is 1% of 54,000. No, 5% of the 54,000 coming in. Yeah. What's 5% oh. of 54,000? Is it one? Two, three, is it like two okay, and a half thousand? You, why are you, you so that's like two and a half thousand coronavirus you cases. You never make me do maths. That makes me sad now. 
I'm not good at math. Well, look. It's like 27. It's a, like 2,700. If it's just a... Around that, yeah. yeah. So if there's just 5% of 54,000, then that's... So that's 2,000 whatever amount of cases um, that are coming if you just have a positivity rate of 5%. Of 5%. So... Um, and then also I'd like to point out like we have rules for everything we have rules for the side of the road that you're allowed to get on we have rules for what you have to you know your 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 uh, seatbelt that you wear we send people to jail if they don't follow regulations we make people put on hard hats and construction sites we don't allow everything we don't leave things up to personal responsibility we have quite a severe like hsa here like our hsa our health safety authority they're very severe like they will fuck you up if you don't do what they recommend and tell you to do you know when you have proof that a population of people um a certain population of people will not follow the rules um then you have to create you have to create they create regulations around that to force everybody to do it and then if you don't you'll be punished but they like they were just kind of like here's some recommendations please do this please don't come home now please please do this please Um, we're asking really nicely yeah we're asking really nicely but anyway just getting back to the second wave um second wave uh the things that happened were schools and colleges reopened um, college students were not given, um, they weren't told, you know, they were told that the colleges would open. They were like, they were, to. weren't given refunds on their accommodations. So they all came up and, yeah, they all came up and started partying. Um, there was a lack of legislation to keep workers home, uh, working from home. So you had Apple in Cork City had 300 people working in their offices again. Um, borders open, obviously. And the healthcare system still under-equipped. So any of the time that they t- they didn't try and open more ICU hospital beds, they didn't recruit any more people um, on a mass scale. Um, they still didn't have a proper track and trace system in place. And so we had to go back into, um, back into isolation to bring down the numbers once again because um, they hadn't all of these, th- they, they made certain decisions that, resulted in predictable outcomes um so what was the can i just say and again the famine and again we see we saw in the second wave them not taking best practice from other countries that were dealing with it so much better Mm -hmm. than we were you know like um i'm all for children at school children should be at school but they shouldn't be at school 30 in a room less than one meter apart exactly Um, and this idea you know they had to be the government had to be kind of scolded into saying that kids would have to wear masks at school like we know for a fact yeah they didn't take any meaningful we know for a fact like that if two people have masks Sorry, on yeah. your night your transmission is is very the likelihood of transmission is quite low if two people are wearing masks you know and yet they were talking about oh no we won't make them wear masks at all and the data is so heavily showing you that that is what you have to do if you want the schools to stay open is that they have to be spaced out and they have to wear masks and both of those things the government were like mm, yeah and maybe not and they, like the Department of Education didn't take time to create a you know uh, uh, a plan about you know maybe go half and half blended learning like many other countries are doing maybe we need to look at ventilate um, how to ventilate our classrooms better maybe we need to throw funding at this XYZ um, no they were just 
gung-ho that this is the plan, this is what we're going to do. And then they got caught out, you know, when it came to the leaving cert at the end of the day because they were they were so convinced that they were going to get a leaving cert. And they were so convinced that they could they that they could make people sit a leaving cert. But like the the events around it and people just forced them. Um, uh, just were like here is all of the evidence why we can't do this so we need another we need another plan because they would have done it they would oh, have done it I'm, I um, feel so I anyway the second like, wave sir. I honestly feel like there's just so it's just such an aptitude and we're going to see more in aptitude here with the second wave of the famine so in 1846 um, our old friend Sir John Russell who was the leader mm. of the British government um, because of what he did with the Corn Laws, he, as I said, signed his own political death warrant and he was ousted um, and a new prime minister took over. And his whole thing was um, that he believed the famine would be over by the summer. So his name was John Russell and he took over from um, he took over from the previous prime minister in May or June, I think May of, of that year. And what happened essentially was he decided that there is there is to be no more there is to be no more relief given to Ireland. He um, asked the civil servants in Dublin what was going on, and they told him the truth. They told him that ninety percent of the potato crop has been um, destroyed. We're beginning to see real death from from famine. There's not a cat or a dog to be found in Ireland. Even the crows are skeletal. Even the crows are skeletal and um, he basically said that they were exaggerating and that there's no way that um, he was going to give. When you just believe. He just, he just didn't, um, he, just, you know? he just didn't care. So um, Sir Randolph South, who was the chair of the Relief Commission, tells government that they may draw a distinct advantage from the calamity in Ireland as it is a chance to modernise um, the country. So... Um, even though the winter is the coldest winter for 100 years, Russell's government stops the distribution of corn. Charles Trevelyan, who is in charge of the public work schemes, cuts pay by 20% from 10 to 8 pence per day. And he also introduced a clause where people are no longer paid for the amount of hours that they work. Instead, they are paid for the amount of work that they've done. Um, so the people who needed it more, the weak and the, weak and the sick, were actually paid less. Um, this... Mm. This essentially meant that by 1847, so the winter of 1846 into 1847, they've essentially spent two years arguing with each other in the government, just like the opposition and, and the party in power just screaming at each other across the House of Commons for two years. And they're still sticking to a laissez-faire attitude. Oh my God, this sounds so familiar. Yeah, they were providing really only the very, very least. Um, corn was imported and sold cheaply and infrastructure works provide some people with money to buy bread and soup kitchens have been um, providing food. But each one of these is taken away, cancelled without warning and without being replaced. The government debates policy while the starving are left to die. Um, so that that second wave, obviously 1847, was the worst year of the famine. And there are so many, dozens and dozens and dozens of reports for the government, for newspapers, depicting the starving Irish. Um, and I think some of these would be familiar to most people who've ever seen like a famine memorial because they're always it's always the same image of skeletal people dressed in rags um, crawling towards an urban centre so that they can try and find some work or food. And mm -hmm. again, 
all they do in the government. And remember now, again, by 1847, the Act of Union has been in for 46 years. So we are British subjects. We should be entitled to the same relief and compensation that anybody in Wales, Scotland or England would be entitled to. Um, but we are not because all they do is just argue and nothing ever Nothing ever gets done for the people of Ireland. The only people who make a very big difference in Ireland are the Quakers, the religious group, the Society of Friends. They they tried with with what little they had. They tried so, so hard to help the people of Ireland and they did help huge swathes of people in Ireland. And I think that without them, the famine would have been made a lot worse. But Again, just like now, uh, there's a lot of reliance on charity when it's the government's job to provide this for you. Mm -hmm. That's what we pay taxes for. You know, that's why we've mm -hmm. given you for some people 43 percent of their paycheck and you're you're doing nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Literally just throwing like uh, like if you look at what they're doing now, they're they're just throwing money at hotels for like they are siphoning money into hotels to um for these vaccination centers instead of using the churches that would be for free and or for less money. Have, and some of the hotels have been saying they haven't even been asked. Like that the, they're on the government like, list, but they stop. haven't even been asked. Would they be a vaccination yeah. center? You know, like Jesus Christ, you learned that in like first year business. Do you know what I mean? If you want to use a company, ask them. I read um, online today, it was like, um, it was talking about the US. It's like, the US is only prepared for war. That is all that the US is prepared for. Like, it is inept at responding to something like this. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. I suppose that is, you know, that's, if it was a war situation, they would be able to respond because they'd have all the systems in place. They've invested all the personnel and, and, and the equipment to deal with that. Um, but when it comes to, you know, healthcare systems, not so much. Um, then finally, the third wave. But I actually would consider like, are we not in the fourth wave? Are we? Or no, sorry, this is the third wave. They're in the third after wave Christmas, now, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so th third wave. Um, what led to the third wave was that we opened up too soon uh, on about like 300 cases a day without proper track. Against Neffet advice against Neffet advice. So it was like, Neffet said um, very demurely, oh, maybe you shouldn't, you know, like I recommend, I consider. Yeah, blah, and blah, then blah. Leo Varadkar so absolutely no. blasted them being like, you're ridiculous, that's unworkable. And then a week later he was like, oh yeah, no, actually we do need to do that. <sighs> but they said um, you you can open hospitality or have people allowed in the houses, but you can't do both. Household visit, but you can't do both. And so what they did was they did both, but they didn't communicate even that no one was allowed over to people's houses for the first three three weeks. So like people were were going over to be other people's houses, thinking you know it was very badly communicated. Of course they are. And then obviously what. The, they did was they let the borders open and thousands as i've mentioned of irish people and uh visitors came home from christmas in the last two and a half week there have been twenty six thousand people flying to this country that is and ten thousand of those were um ten thousand of those were visitors you know like uh were non-irish residents and sixteen thousand were irish residents um and it's like you know, if again, there's only a 5% rate, that is 
another 2000 it's you like, know how are, are you not are learning cases from that this? are highly infectious do you know like how are you not learning from this it's absolutely no but it's not like if you had if you had a because friend who was doing the, the day, same thing again and again and again and getting the same shitty results like you'd be like what the fuck are you doing that's how i feel it's I'm, I, I therapy. Feel, I'm like what the fuck but are you doing but it's not like it's it's not that they don't know. Like, they know. They've been given all the advice. They can see it elsewhere. They, yeah, I know. But what I'm saying is that it's not even negligent because they're um, unable to do it. It's a deliberate choice, just as it was a deliberate choice during the famine. It was a delib- It is a deliberate choice to allow more people come into this country. It is a deliberate choice to um, not put have a properly uh, source or fund your tracking trace system. It is a deliberate choice to Bunch of numbers. be, um, yeah, and like, oh, we're going to throw this guy, like they're throwing money on uh, at people. They tried to hike one of the salaries up by 81,000 for a HSC boss. And it was like, dude, you know, like student nurses still aren't paid, you know? So it's, um, it is, I think it's really difficult for human beings because we are raised on media and propaganda and uh, uh, and stuff that like shows us what a villain looks like. Uh, but there's no real such thing as a villain. You know, like you can't, it's really hard to spot a villain even on a, 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 a big stage like you know like the like for Donald Trump he was I know a lot of people didn't like him and the rest of it but he charmed a whole set of people who really really loved him and, and I think we have to realize that like like the the kind of I don't want to call him a villain because it's not like a villain but it's like the kind of the kind of damage that people can do that leads to death that leads to um uh isolation that leads to underfunding um uh vulnerable populations on purpose looks like them it doesn't look like the guy with the one eye yeah it's and not the gun a, and the not a mr money bag like running you know? away from the from the youth club like with all the money in his bag you know it's it's standing somewhere in a nameless faceless fucking office yeah. going oh that 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 youth club no 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 that homeless women's shelter no 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 you know, that's that's what it looks like. And it's named like the thing yes, is, it's we, the... we might blame the government, but it, it is also like very high up civil servants whose name we will never know who's making these decisions as well. You know, the ministers don't just they don't wake up in the morning and, and start planning government it, it, policy all by themselves at all. You know. Exactly. It's the it's the man who kills his wife and three kids up the country who was a pillar of the community. Great man. It the is the. Um, Great man for the JA, great man for the parish. We never saw it coming. You know, like, I think we have to remap what, like, because no more are we really, are. it's going to be very, it's going to be very rare, I reckon, that we see our, you know, governments directly attacking us physically, you know, um, except when we do something that deserves it, such as protesting or whatever. But they're not coming into your house anymore and like string you up and and um the, it's through these policies it's policies it's systems that they allow that they're able to do this kind of shadow work 
you know, this, and, and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist either, but this kind of like, uh, this damage with no fingerprints. Yeah, and like, you know what I mean? There's nobody fi- nobody's like, fingerprints on anything. Like the perfect example doesn't even relate to the coronavirus in any way, but it just shows the ineptitude of the people who work for our fucking government. When they bought a printer for one million euro that wouldn't fit for into the room million. they bought it for. Like measuring yeah. is something you learn in first class. You know, like come on. And that's one million euro of taxpayer money that's just poof, disappeared. Just gone. And nobody will gone. be held accountable. Like nobody will be held up and said, okay, this was your fault. You're getting fired for this. Like, no, no, there's no accountability is another thing as well. Um, I think that's something that we mm-hmm. see in a lot of modern developed countries is just a huge lack of accountability. And whereas on the flip side, in a lot of developing countries, you see a lot of accountability. You see like people getting, politicians getting thrown in jail because they did something that the people didn't like. We don't have that here, you know. If the people manage to... Um, if the people manage to Id- properly identify that this guy is the villain, because uh, often people live under an uh, the illusion that, like, they're also under the illusion that it's all like a personal responsibility and blah blah blah. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, if that if they manage to actually get him. So uh, then finally, what is the third? What was the third wave like in um, during the famine? Yeah. So the funny thing about the famine is that, um, well, not funny, but. One of the things about the famine, obviously, is that it wasn't, it, it was like there was a wave every time that the potato should have grown. Like there was a, there was, um, you know, there was an expectation that it would, you'd get a good harvest and then you wouldn't. And it would be after that, that you would see a lot of deaths. Um, now, mm-hmm. obviously, bearing in mind that the, that the blight, um, kept coming back you know so what happened was say in 1846 after that really bad winter people didn't have the seed potatoes to plant and actually in 1847 the blight did not hit Ireland half as badly as it had before but because everybody had eaten their seed potatoes to try and stave off the starvation the year before they hadn't planted such a large crop because they didn't have and they thought to themselves like what the fuck am I planting this for it's gonna rot in the ground you know might as well eat it now um, so there wasn't a, a a good crop that year at all, and lots and lots and lots of people died from um, starvation and famine related illnesses. So, um, in as I said, eighteen forty seven uh, was the worst year of the famine, and a part of it being the worst year of the famine was an amendment to the Poor Law Act. We've spoken about Poor Law Acts here before. They're usually um, a an extra tax put on. Um, landlords in order to make sure they kind of clean up their estates. So the poor law basically meant that now landlords had to pay for the relief of the people who worked on or lived on their land. And obviously, as we all know, um, people over profit over people was the name of the game at the day. So the landlords just started evicting people um, in their hundreds of thousands. And these people would usually try and get to the workhouse. Um, from 1842 to 1849, over 200 workhouses are built all over Ireland. Now, while workhouses are common in imperial countries like France and America, it was only Britain that used them for industrial scale relief in order to deal with destitutions. Some landlords were more charitable. They gave out food and they forgave their tenants' rents, but they were few and far between, um, unfortunately. So by 
1848, the blight is still here. Deaths, evictions and emigrations continue. But famine fatigue is now setting in. The charitable organisations that were set up to deal with the famine, they are finding it very tough to get money out of people because people are like, what do you mean that's not over yet? Like, I already mm-hmm. gave them money. Why am I giving them more money? So that was mm-hmm. a big, big problem. And um, now now stuff starts to get really bad. So the destitute start dying on the roads. The middle classes who have money become harder and colder and won't give out charity because um, they, you know, it's, it's as you said earlier, like Ireland is a metal country. Like we are very much like I'll help my neighbor to do whatever he needs to do. But that actually really went away during the last few years of the famine because people had just had enough of it. You know, they just, just couldn't tired, deal. Yeah. yeah, they just couldn't deal with it anymore. People become extremely selfish and the crime rate spirals. Murder is now a daily occurrence and there are several cases of cannibalism recorded in Cork, Kerry, Galway and Mayo. Um, And because crime has become very um, common, people are getting um, sentenced to hard labour in Australia. Um, So the emigration now begins to outstrip deaths. So people um, in large families, as is custom in Ireland, the eldest child goes and they try and send the money for the children to come, the other children to come behind them. And that started happening and became very, very common. And about two million people emigrated. If those people had not emigrated, the death toll would have been far, far higher. What starts to happen is that very slowly um, money begins to kind of trickle into the country. For, from these relatives that people have sent to America and from, in particular, as I mentioned earlier, the Quakers. Um, many donations come in, obviously, from America. And so, like, the prisoners in Sing Sing Jail made, um, made a huge donation to Ireland. The Choctaw Indians from Oklahoma also made a huge donation to Ireland. And that, that, that kind of helped to mitigate some of the lack of response from the British government. You know, it was the charity, really, that was taking over there. So the so the famine didn't really end in Ireland until about 1852. So it was about seven years um, of famine in Ireland. And as we know, the results, at least a million dead, at least a million and a half emigrated. And what I kind of wanted to say really here was the difference between um, the British government's reaction and the Northern European government's reaction. So by the end of the famine, um, obviously, we had... A, a culture and a language completely devastated by by death and destruction. We had massive emigration, huge deaths, mass graves all over the country. People who had were traumatized by what they had seen um, in Ireland. However, in France, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Prussia, where people are not as dependent on the potato, um, the government actually stepped in. So the the government set up municipal councils, and these municipal councils. Um, started to give out uh, food in soup kitchens, but also famine relief in uh, public works. The difference was that in the public works in Northern Europe, you got paid as well as fed. So you had food in the morning and that would keep, that would, that would give you the energy to do your work for the day and then you get your money at the end. They also um, stopped all mm-hmm. non-food juices of wheat so brewing and all that stuff no more um, to ensure that the wheat remained at a stable price. They also imported huge amounts of wheat and put huge tariffs on exports, which meant that um, essentially by the end of the famine in Northern Europe, 100,000 people died. Now, that's a lot. That's too much. But compare that to a million here. 
Um, and and all the the blight was the exact same. The conditions were similar in that you had a lot of peasants and a lot of people who were landless. But the difference was the government's response was the government in mm-hmm. um, Northern Europe took a more caring response, um, not because they really cared about the poor, but because they didn't want people to riot. They didn't want people to revolt. If you compare that to Britain, Britain spent around eight million pounds on famine relief in Ireland. That translates to about 600 million today. That sounds like a lot of money, doesn't it? 600 Mm. million on famine relief. Um, If I tell you that most of that was spent on loans, which were expected to be repaid. And if you think that they took in, in today's money, 300 billion in taxes that year, that works out that they spent 2.6% of their annual income on famine relief in Ireland, 2.6%. That includes the 14 million that they spent on police and army wages in that time. So that, um, that's, that, that 600 million includes 14 million that they spent on, on wages because in Ireland, they also had the fear that people would revolt, and which they did, um, you know, that they would raid grain stores and, and attack people, which they did. But they decided that instead of spending the money on relief to help the people, we're going to spend it on soldiers and police to um, corral the people and keep them away from the precious food that we are exporting constantly from your country, from cheese to milk to meat to wheat to barley to rye. The British continued to export food throughout the entire famine as we were essentially the breadbasket of the British army uh, at the time. So as you said at the start of the podcast, like the hazard event was the same in Northern Europe and in Ireland. But the result, the disaster occurred in Ireland so much, so much worse because of the ineptitude and the indifference that the British had to um, the situation in Ireland at the time. That's incredible. I actually, you know, when you were talking there, I was thinking, you know, what you said about fatigue and it's so true. And I wonder how much of our, I feel like it still rings true today. Irish people are so used to living in a state of crisis, like a housing crisis is something that has gone on for years and years and years. And people just don't like, you can't like, people just don't have they still care about it, but like they just don't have the energy because they're they have to go about their own lives. And before that, it was something else, you know, like the there was, you know, the mags and laundries crisis was happening. The mother and babies crisis was happening, uh, a societal crisis um, after societal crisis. And um, I just I wonder if we have inherited that because we're not very good at like standing up um, and taking action. Are we living in a constant state of fatigue to be honest um, with you, in this country? It's really not uncommon in post-colonial societies like ours mm. for people to be quite indifferent towards the negative actions of their government. Because unfortunately, mm. like as a people, we have deep in our psyche a little voice that says, at least they're not the Brits. Mm. at least they're or at not least the it's not the famine had, you know we had it worse we had it worse before we can deal with this you know sure really if you think about it the only time that we saw serious serious protests in in the whole of the austerity period was when they tried to take the medical cards away from the pensioners and when they mm. tried to bring in the water charges 
Yeah. That was it. And I think yeah. the reason for that was everyone can rally around the poor pensioners. Like they paid their fucking dues, give them their medical cards. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus. And also because I feel like the water charges were like the straw that broke the camel's back. People were like very, very fair, annoyed yeah. about the property tax, you know. And But we swallowed it and we paid it. And then they start t- saying, Phil Hogan, you remember big Philly Hogan from this summer who said he didn't go, he didn't go anywhere next or near the golf dinner. He turned around mm. back when the water charges and he said that he'd turn off people's water. He would turn off the water to people's houses yeah. if they didn't pay their water charges. And that just really, really irked people. Obviously, water is a human right. Try, I, I'd like you like to see you try and come into my house and turn off my water. Like, But at the same time, like how how could you be so unfeeling and uncaring like it was a feeling i think which is starting to happen to people now about the coronavirus which is that the people are realizing that they don't really care about you mm-hmm. like they they just don't they don't really care that your mental health is is fucked because you've been inside in your house for two months solid and now at nine o'clock to to a tabloid the leader of our country tells us that we're going to be inside for another nine weeks. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like the miscommunication and the kind of feeling of the uncaring feeling that I personally am getting from them right now. I don't know about you, but I'm definitely getting a, a feeling like one rule for them, another rule for us. And it doesn't um, matter. I think I, I want to mention two things. Another thing that you said about like um, people immigrating. I don't know if you've um, listened. To, I've, I put out a little story time um, last night of um, Constance Makovic letters. I just read three of them. Ooh. And um, yeah. So in the in the in the episode I released about um, uh, the Constance, Mac- Constance Makovic letters, she mentions in her letters that she thinks that or that there there is the thought that because the immigration was stopped because of the world war that's why there was trouble in ireland because people weren't able to leave then it forced change within the country and i wonder if um the same will apply now there's thousands and thousands of people who have been forced to stay and um to deal with this and to be, you know, like, I wonder if that will have an effect on, like, if they're not going to be able, allowed to, to leave and a general election is called, you know, like, they're, they're anything. Yeah, I happen. totally agree. Like, I kind of think that for a lot of people, say, like, you know, in their 50s and 60s, the Ireland that they grew up in was so close minded, so insular and so so choking that loads of our activists our creatives mm. our intellectuals left this country because they they felt they were drowning here you know under the weight of all the societal pressures and the kind of um the kind of feeling that like what am i how how can i live my best self like how can i become who i am if i have to stay here you know exactly. and i think that if yeah. you look so many of the big thinkers, shall we say, of the last 50 years have been people who have either emigrated and never come home or emigrated and come home, came home after things had changed for the better, you know? Like, if mm-hmm. you think, yeah. if you were, like, a member of the LGBTQ plus, like, 
back in the 70s 80s or 90s like why would you want to be in Ireland you know yeah when you, you could would go leave to London and you would go elsewhere yeah and as things began things began to change because during the Celtic Tiger those people began to move back here and start saying like I'm here and I deserve my rights mm-hmm. and that was I think one of the reasons that we pushed so forward as a society in the space of less than 20 years you know we went from decriminalizing homosexuality to marriage equality in 20 years mm-hmm. and marriage equality by popular vote as well mm-hmm. which I think as a worldwide phenomenon is very unusual to go from one extreme of such kind of deprivation of human rights to having a popular vote on one of the most important human rights like the right to marry you know yeah um yeah and I think, yeah, I wonder, and it'll be interesting to see what happened. I feel like I'm probably two weeks ahead of everyone in their descent into madness when it comes to the coronavirus. Like his announcement last night didn't really hit me that hard because I've already gone through the realization that, you know what I mean? I already went through it. I've had the despair. I see people online now absolutely losing their shit and talking about like they can't They're do like, it oh, anymore. That was me last week. And I'm like, oh, well, no, yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, welcome. Um, but I don't know. It's what, like, you know, that, you know, that dog do who's to... sitting, you know, that comic of the dog yeah. who's sitting in his kitchen and the whole thing's on this fire. And fine. he's like, it's fine. This is fine. That's me. This is fine. Like, yeah. that's me right now. Yeah. I'm just ignoring. I'm trying so hard as well, like not to be on Twitter too much, not to be looking at the news too much, because it really is just doing my head in like, you know, it's. It's the the ineptitude and reading like the stuff, the shit that they expect us to believe. Like, do you think I floated down the lagging in a bubble? Like, I do you know what I mean? Like, if you have any sort of like critical media literacy skills at all, you can see what the shit that they're trying to pull. Sure, only mm-hmm. last week, um, they were trying. There was some journalists. They were going to a briefing, and uh, they turned around and they were like, "Oh, we're only taking journalists from RTE." Oh, and Fergal Bowers. Fergal Bowers, fair juice to him, turned around and he was like, "Well, if now, bitch, if they're not going in, I'm. If they're not going in, I'm not going mm-hmm. in." And they backed down. Yeah. But this is the shit that they're trying. That's just Trumpism. That's what that is: is deciding what news outlets you're going to allow to listen to your fucking nationwide briefing. You know, like, sorry, that that doesn't fly here. Um, we won't be having that. It's crazy, yeah. Media, media censorship. I think the last point I wanted to make uh, was, you know the decision to keep doing what we're doing is because it doesn't inconvenience people who ultimately make decisions and who ultimately benefit from the situation. Um, so business people. business people can still come and go um, to Europe and to the UK and they and uh, therefore they don't want to be locked into the country. So whilst, you know, like, I think the question is very simple when it comes to this. Would you prefer to be locked in your country or locked in your bedroom? And everyone, the majority of people want to be locked in the country, not locked in our bedrooms. Um, I just want to be able to go more than five kilometers from my fucking house. So right, exactly. Um, but uh, I'd like to see my uncle again before I die. You know, to, the 25% of voters who voted for Fine Gael are doing just fine. And um, they're the ones in power and they're the ones who are allowing this to continue. And that is really, I think everyone is understanding, getting a crash course in this legacy of an aptitude that 
we have inherited from generation to generation to generation, stretching as far back as um, the famine. Because like, you know, even the things I was reading in Constance's um, letters, it was just so like the same lines were being used by the crown against Sinn Féin and the same kind of crap, like the same tactics. And um, uh, I just think that like, we we've had just, we've tasted it whilst it's going into our mouth this time. You know, we haven't had had to swallow it and regurgitate it and examine what went wrong. We can we can we know we can taste the poison already, but it's still being food. It's uh, happening uh, in front of us, uh, like yeah, it's still being. It's um, happening right, like what's the word? spoon fed to us, force fed, but we can so, see it, and I think that like it's kind of insulting though. It's kind of insulting though, isn't it? Like, you know, for, for people who have sacrificed so much, um, and I'm not even talking about me personally, like I'm talking about people who have, you know, not seen their parents for six months or not seen their grandparents for a year and just being told like, um, well, that's zero COVID thing. No, we're not, no, that's not for us. Don't you worry about that. It's very patronizing, do you know what I mean? No, that's not gonna work, um, but I'm not discussing why. Do you know what it's like? Yeah. Do you know what it's like? It's um, like when you're like five yeah. and one of your friends knows how something, doesn't know how something works, but they pretend that they do. And they're like, no, I'm not explaining it to you. That's what it's like. No, they, this is what I'm saying. They do know how it works. They know how it works. They're just pretending no, they're they choosing not to do it. It's yeah, so they're choosing not to do it. Okay. Yeah, it's so, just like. A joke. A huge joke but a joke that's costing um how many lives so far four thousand in the republic yeah those are people those are people who were people who have families who love them and you know as as detailing and interesting a life as as anybody else um and you know next time fina gale and fina fall go on about like the victims of the troubles how many people died in the troubles 3,000. 3,000. So we've officially, we've officially overtaken the amount of people that died um, from the troubles. In a 30 year period. Bombs, in a 30 year period um, in one year in this country. So people are dead because, because of actions that people take. So like one is more visceral, being attacked, being stabbed, being violently assaulted, being killed is obviously more visceral and people react more viscerally to it because it is it is that is like that is like you're reacting to a collapsed building versus 35,000 people dying because of road traffic accidents in the US you know what i mean like one is slow and one is slow and and one is publicized and one is not yeah like when when they when they say the numbers every night on at the briefing you know 600 today 589 30 people dead 50 people dead um like it's so removed you know mm -hmm. what i mean like it's just numbers and when you think about how many people died in the troubles it's as you said there's more people died of coronavirus but what what happened as well with the troubles was that it was so broadcast, mm -hmm. you know, it was on the front page of every newspaper. It was on the nightly news, these horrible visceral images of the poor victims mm -hmm. um, that, and what happened to them. Mm -hmm. feel. Yeah. Um, okay. I think that is us. It's been an hour and a half. Um, 
And I hope that you, if you're hope listening you to this, something about the famine. And if you're listening to this, we actually managed to record it, and we actually managed to successfully record it, and we've actually managed to not have a buzzing computer so that it ruins all the audio. Um. Oh God! I please hope if I didn't record this properly, then Christine's <laughs> going to come to my house. Um, and socially distant <laughs> murder me. I will do it like Michal Martin does it. Uh, first, I will cut off your water, and then I. <laughs> oh no, not my water! I need, I need that. that. Okay. Um. Yeah, I think that is all. Thank, Thank you, you so for, much listening. for listening. Uh, do follow us on the socials. Give smash the like button or whatever. Send us. You know what I want? If you come this far, I want you to screenshot the episode and then tag us on Instagram so that I can be like, oh my God, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. And then I'll share it on my own story and you'll get a and dopamine. praise upon you. And you'll get a dopamine hit because, hit because of that as well. And it'll be like dopamine exchange, you know, what we need at these times. Okay, thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye.